This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. When the fiction belongs to a specific subculture, like evangelicals, reading for that reason can can connect one to this larger conversation mm-hmm. and to this imagined identity, this yeah. imaginary discourse community. How do books shape us? And can books shape us into actually feeling like we're part of something bigger than just ourselves and our own reading experience? Well, in this conversation with Daniel Silliman, we talk about the history of evangelicalism through the lens of five best-selling evangelical novels in the last several decades. You'll want to listen in for a wide-ranging, interesting conversation on art and the structures that uphold it. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right. It's fun to welcome Daniel Silliman. He is the author of a recently released book called Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. So it's really fun to have him here to talk about all of these topics, particularly as we consider the topics of art and limits here at the Finding Holy Podcast. So thanks for being here, Daniel. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. So it was fun. Before we got started, we were chatting about our PhDs. And so just an apology to, you know, potential listeners if we get a little bit nerdy and dorky here. But um, (laughs) I think there will be application for our normal everyday lives as well. So tell us, I love, I love both the intro and conclusion of your book as you were talking about what makes an evangelical. And, you know, if you're Christian, You've probably heard that and have various theological or belief-oriented ways of defining that, which you talk about in the introduction. Or if you're not a Christian or you're not an evangelical, they can just look like this weird kind of voting block that's really come to prominence, especially um, after Trump. And so as we consider this question of what does it look like to be an evangelical, what is an evangelical, you turn to books and you talk about how books and bookstores and publishing have actually kind of captured the imaginative formation of people. Can you talk us through that? Because I think that's brilliant. Thanks. And I would love to hear more about what that, what, if you could flesh that out for people. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think belief is obviously really important and, and politics is obviously really important, but they're not very good ways for historians or or people who are trying to understand culture to track this movement that's um you know um a, a trans a very loose you know that doesn't have a pope it's a very it's transdenominational and mm-hmm. it's 
it's um and a lot of people have really struggled trying to track and trying to understand evangelicals through belief or politics and what i wanted to do was instead use infrastructure and imagination so those mm-hmm. two things so infrastructure thinking of what are the literal things in the world that connect people mm-hmm. that make them think of themselves as as evangelicals that connect them into um, a conversation uh, a conversation that can be about belief and can be about politics but also changes over time mm-hmm. and books and bookstores are one of those structural things that that hold evangelicalism together as it as it changes. There are others. I don't, I don't make any claims that books and bookstores and fiction and fiction markets are, are the only ones. I just think they give us a sort of really good access. I mean, I think um, magazines like Christian Today, where I work, certainly do that same thing. Popular uh, evangelists like Billy Graham certainly did that, you know, sort of mm-hmm. through celebrity pulling people together. Mm-hmm. But bookstores are kind of a special space and they give us really good insight, I think, into both the structure, who, who's, who's invited into the conversation, who has access, who doesn't have access, how that changes over time. Uh, and these questions about, about um, imagination and, and, um, just the idea of what it means to believe and how we understand what that's like to believe and Christian fiction, which is so popular and has so many readers in particular gives us this insight into um, not the, not the way that every single person answers the question, what is it like to believe, but at least how that question gets framed for many, yeah. many people. Talk to us a little bit more about this idea of of imagination being formed and how that happens particularly with fiction. I think of this in, 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 in two ways. Um, one is just what fiction does, right? right? Fiction uh, invites you to imagine something and invites you, you know, in, in a religious fiction, it doesn't invite you to believe it invites mm-hmm. you to suspend disbelief mm-hmm. and, and any, you know, any realist novel um, is going to say, Hey, the world is kind of like this, right? Um, But of course, I don't have to actually believe that the world is like this. I just have to be willing to pretend to play along with the author that Mm -hmm. that this is what the world is like. Um, And so for, for religion, I think that for religious writers, I think that can be a really powerful thing i think if you write um if you write a polemic if you write a theology book you know you're having to like make arguments yep um and the reader's initial response to a polemic is well i don't know if i agree with this and am i persuaded by these arguments and what evidence have they mounted and for fiction it's just really different you know you your 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 readers are responding playfully <laughs> Mm-hmm. imaginatively, mm-hmm. Um, creatively, there's a lot of sense of, oh, let me try this on. And you know you can put it down, right? You're not um, trapped by a novel. You're you're mm-hmm. invited to pick it up and put it down and try it on. And I think that, um, that practice can really matter. Um, it can really transform people's lives. I mean, I think we know that about fiction reading in general, but but religious 
fiction reading in particular, you know, it gives, it gives people the opportunity to really experience reality in a, in a new Mm. way. Mm. The second, the second way I think it shapes imagination is through um, community, right? I spent a lot of time thinking about how when you read a novel, it's this very private act and very isolated act, but it also has this community kind of built into yeah. it. You're in community with the with the author, you're in conversation with the author, of course, but but you're also kind of thinking of the other readers. Yeah. You know, if I read a book and I don't like it, I think, well, who is this intended for? You know, and I have there's a sort of intuitive sense of, well, this was really meant for this kind of person. And I'm not quite that kind of person, but I can still read it, but I maybe have a different response than the mm-hmm. author intended. And then of course, there's also real communities. You know, so many books are handed around and so many of us, you know, you read a book because your mother read it or because your best friend read it mm-hmm. or um, because a coworker that you like also read it or you're in a book club. And I think um, when when the fiction belongs to a specific subculture, like evangelicals, reading for that reason can can connect one to this larger conversation mm-hmm. and to this imagined identity, this yeah. imaginary discourse community, yeah. um, to use the academic word. <laughs> um, that's so. Oh, I'm I'm an evangelical. I'm part of this conversation, and maybe I'm slightly different than other people in this conversation, but I am part of this imaginative, um, creative, um, responding to the questions of this text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think both the, both the real community and the, and the imagined community of, of reading books is, um, is pretty powerful. And both the imaginative work that I'm doing to engage with the world of the novel and the imaginative work that I'm inspired to do and invited to do to engage with the communities of the novel Mm-hmm. turn out to be um, powerful forces to shape identity. Mm-hmm. And ones that we, we just kind of breathe in, you know, we don't, we don't often take kind of a step back to, to look at and say, okay, how am I being formed and shaped or invited into this, mm-hmm. you know, into these conversations? Um, what do we do just um, to kind of move us towards the end of the book, right? Where you're saying you're kind of back in the present day um, and you look at five novels, that have sold million, a million copies at least over the last several decades. But, you know, as we kind of, if we think backwards to kind of present day back, what would you say, you know, if you're going to give us a 30,000 foot view, like how evangelicalism has changed in the course of, you know, these five novels that you look at um, as far as its identity as a thing, although it's never been a monolithic thing. Yeah. And a lot of what I'm trying to do is show how, evangelicalism can actually be a bunch of things at once, right? The multiplicity of it. So you can see as you read along, you know, and I, the first novel I look at is really the one that, that starts evangelical fiction as a market category. And that's in the seventies. And I go into the, into the two thousands where the market really fractures and Mm -hmm. there really aren't, um, best-selling evangelical novels today, right? It kind of disappears a little bit. The novels still exist, but they're not that kind of mass phenomenon. One thing you can see in that that story from the 70s to the 2000s 
is the emergence of a of a very strong culture war Christianity. Yeah. yeah. And that's not shocking to anyone who, you know, <laughs> yeah. was alive in the 80s or 90s or 2000s, right? Like it it's it's um it's something we know, but you can kind of watch it emerge. And it emerges specifically as this idea of the this idea that conflict with my neighbors um can be a way to live out my faith, hmm. right? This idea that, that, um, if I'm, if I'm truly following Jesus and believing the Bible and I'm committed to the, to the truth of the gospel, that that was, this will put me in some kind of, um, opposition. Um, sometimes the right. phrase that Francis Schaeffer uses antithetical, uh, this antithetical relationship to other people and fighting with them is an expression um, of my faith, that hasn't always been true for evangelicals. And there's something a little bit odd about it, I think, if we think that loving our neighbors is a key part of loving people who disagree with us, loving our mm-hmm. enemies mm-hmm. Uh, is a key testimony of being a follower of Jesus. But you see that emerge. You see that mm-hmm. sort of blossom and grow and expands um, and then you see it not be everything too. You know, so many of the accounts of evangelicalism make that the beginning and the end. Um, and I think you can definitely see how the novels that tell that story form people and shape mm-hmm. people and inspire people. But readers are also creative and it doesn't force anyone to believe anything. So you also see people read these novels and maybe because of it's in novel form, maybe because it's fiction, they sort of have the opportunity to stop and rethink those questions as well. You mm. see, you know, you see Left Behind, which is definitely a culture war novel, um, inspire a lot of evangelicals to say, oh, not like that. Right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I am a part of that. And I think the questions that that novel is asking are important or compelling or significant. But like, that's actually not the kind of Christianity that, that I want to um, promote or embrace. That's not my understanding of, of the right way to believe. And then you see other novels emerge that tell slightly different stories, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it has changed, but it's sort of, um, it's always in flux. (laughs) Right. One other theme you talk about throughout the book is this, the narrative of individualism Mm -hmm. and kind of anti-institutionalism that a lot of these really best-selling novels have created. And I couldn't help but think, well, we have other folks like Wendell Berry, right, who are writing novels for a community. Um, Why Mm -hmm. do you think there's something particular to these best-selling novels that promote this maybe hyper-individualized, kind of disconnected view of life and faith as the good life? I mean, I do think these are pretty... um popular ideas in American culture. Right. I think the, the novels in particular that pick up the individualist idea and the anti-institutionalist idea, which are distinct, but, but connected, I think are both um, taking a broadly popular American cultural experience or, 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 or value and, turning it in a way they're appropriating it for Jesus. Um, yeah. They're not arriving to it independently, but then they're also not, 
I mean, I think it's it's hard to know as a Christian which parts of culture are you supposed to adopt and adapt for the sake of the gospel and which parts are you supposed to be countercultural and reject completely and Mm -hmm. individualism is definitely one that i feel like evangelicals have have um gone both ways with and and struggled with it also helps to remember that um you know these books are primarily sold through bookstores and the bookstores are primarily in the suburbs so there's a kind of um there's a sense in which evangelicalism has been grounded in a very particular kind of space. Yeah. It's not that it doesn't exist other places, but it is grounded in the suburbs and so the story of um white flight, the story of uh everybody should have their own home, the story of a nuclear family that's primarily understood through consumption rather than its creativity or production. Mm-hmm. Um that that has been that has been kind of the 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 grounding reality for most evangelicals. So I think it would be really different if if um you know, if most of us lived like Wendell Berry on old farms where right. we grew trees and imagined trees as our as our crop that we'll never live to harvest. Or, you know, there's there are movements um, throughout the 20th century, throughout the second half of the 20th century, to be sure, there are movements of evangelicals moving into urban spaces and trying to live in... Um, in dense and, and multicultural or urban communities and seeing that as their call as Christians. My sense is that those people in those spaces tend to not embrace the kind of individualism that comes really naturally if right. you're shopping at Costco and have two and a half kids and a dog and a very defined plot of land that's yours. And that's the space in which you think you're going to live out your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely different challenges in suburban spaces. That's why I wrote a book on it. Yeah, and it's not, <laughs> and it's not that you can't be. I mean, I'm trying to suggest that you can't be countercultural or you can't be communitarian in in the right. suburbs. Of course, you can. It's just that um, it's going to require something different of you. In, in yeah, and it's helpful to think about these things in context, right? right? It's helpful to think about where these things live. <laughs> And where we find them in our mm-hmm. own hearts and lives, and 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 um, and not just think of them as like an intellectual project, but right. how did our how did our ways of life and how did our um, you know the infrastructure that mm-hmm. forms us and mm-hmm. connects us mm-hmm. um, shape these things? Yeah, no, those are good questions, and I think yeah, as Americans, particularly if you're American listening to the podcast, um we often don't think of those sorts of infrastructures and structures as those things that shape us, but they do. And I think that's um, a really helpful comment. You know, as, as we think about the decline of the Christian bookstore, um, there aren't a lot left. Where do you see kind of those imaginative forces happening today? Or, you know, you, you open your book talking about kind of observing this closing Christian bookstore and just the different conversations and different things that people are purchasing and, you know, how it's kind of this microcosm of many evangelicalisms perhaps. Um, so yeah, where, where do we go from here? What does it look like now? Yeah. I think the bookstore is a really interesting one because it holds together a bunch of different evangelicalisms at, at once. But my my kind of theory is that there have always been multiple structures at mm-hmm. once. Um, 
and so the demise of one or the or the decline and weakening because there's mm-hmm. still some christian bookstores out there um means it's replaced by it's replaced by others and i it really seems to me to be a a story of fragmentation in a right. way yeah i think there are a bunch of people who are going to identify more with their denomination, for example, or just mm-hmm. their particular church. I hear more like, well, I don't know if I'm an evangelical, right? but I know I belong to this one community. And that sense of a, of a trans-denominational community, I think, is weakening. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we see is just the, the significance of the political narrative. Yeah. I, mean, I think the polarized political narrative in every aspect of life has become more more important to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've even seen this in like um, how local politics becomes nationalized. Um, right. I, I remember working for a newspaper and, and covering a local election. It was probably a decade ago. And um, the two mayoral candidates were fighting about the Iraq war. And I was like, oh, I didn't know the mayor of this small town had any say over the Iraq war. But we've kind of all had that happen Mm. in our lives, you know? Yeah. We've all had this sense that, like, your position on the big political thing and how you imagine that just shapes Mm. you, just shapes you more. So I do see Mm. the, the political understanding of evangelicalism and that identity sort of being increasingly powerful. I don't think that's good for evangelicalism and I don't think that really helps us end the whole history of evangelicalism. It's a more recent phenomenon. Um, but it wouldn't shock me if 10 years from now, that's the, that's the dominant one and other people are doing other things. That's our kind of imaginative formation tends to only be political. It has such a hold on people's imagination. It is so, so dominant in general just politics and evangelicalism can be a part of that yeah are you worn out by hurry and hustle and yet you don't know what it looks like to find a better way well jasmine holmes called my book a spacious life balm for a weary soul tish harrison warren called it a needed tonic and jen pollock michelle talks about it as rescuing us from the siren call of self-help. Join these women as they have experienced both their own limits and seen how my book, A Spacious Life, helps all of us to embrace the goodness of our God-given limits. Find out more at aspacious.life. That's aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, 
Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. What would be your hope for like this imagined community? You know, should we should we be giving up the idea of evangelicalism? Should we Yeah, is there is there should we be kind of rethinking that term? Um is there a way to you know, maybe grow in some of the common good imagined community some of this language that you're using? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a hopefulness <laughs> to, you know, to, to come out the other side from this kind of political uh, allegiance that, you know, seems pretty vitriolic online these days? I'm hanging on to the word evangelical for some personal reasons and, <laughs> and for some stubbornness reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I just also think there's there is some value to the term and there is some value to the history and there is some, um, some important pieces of it that I think are worth saving and I think can be saved. And part of the, part of the hopefulness for me is really describing the multiplicity and the way in which it's always in flux. I think a lot of the criticisms of evangelicalism have this sense that like, it's not just true that this is the way it is now they, they sort of have the sense that, oh, it had to be this way. It mm-hmm. was always going to be this way. And I guess my historical study makes me think, no, it could have been a lot of different ways. There mm-hmm. were a bunch of forks in the road. And, and if we went one direction, that means we could have gone the other. <laughs> and there are going to be more forks in the road. And, and, and we can pay attention to that. And I mean, I think if you understand how change happens, then you'll have a better chance at actually shaping that, that change in the future, having, having an influence on that change in the future. I certainly, I mean, not as a historian, but just as a, as a person, as a Christian, I certainly would like to see more imagination rather Mm -hmm. than less. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's the one thing I see a lot of forces trying to narrow it so that you can only, Mm-hmm. think of your faith in one particular way. I like the way the bookstores do a bunch of different things and mm-hmm. ask a bunch of different versions of that same question about how you live out your faith. I certainly would like to see us um, not be so individualistic. Right. I certainly would like to see us um, yeah, think about loving our neighbors more than fighting our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, In that space, I don't speak with a lot of authority, right? Those are just my, my own, my own, my own (laughs) faith and my own sense of the culture that I, that I live in. Um, But as a historian, what I can say is, man, it's been a bunch of different things and Mm -hmm. it's kind of always moving. Mm -hmm. And um, if we understood that better, I think we'd have them, you know, whether you reject the label and the community or embrace it, I think it would just be helpful to have a better sense of uh, how it actually exists in the world, right. which is kind of complicated, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
No, I think that's that's a helpful thing because if we can also see that there's a multiplicity, uh, then we can have hopefulness for for various strands, <laughs> or that yeah. maybe yeah. that one strand isn't going to be be the be the thing. One thing I think about a lot is that um, evangelicalism has more gatekeepers than gates. Like there's a lot of people who sort of make the claim to say, here's what it is for sure. And here's who's allowed to enter or not. But there isn't a Pope. There isn't even a synod. There's a, there's um, it's very loose and it's mm-hmm. very open. And, and some of the core claims of evangelicalism are things like um, you have a personal relationship with Jesus and that, um, should be shaped by a community. It should be in conversation with a church, but um, you shouldn't just accept someone else's authority. That that just concept, that that evangelical idea, is gonna tell us how open it is to being a bunch of different things. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and point. And how it's always going to be contested. Do you think evangelicals create good art? <laughs> As you're looking at you know these five best-selling novels. Yeah. You know, one of your, uh, one of the endorsements talked about, you know, evangelicalism has never produced a Flannery O'Connor or Graham Greene. So, yeah. uh, which is true. And yeah. So I, I just wonder, cause there's Maybe. something to a little bit about like the Catholic imagination that Spain, like more easily enters general market, maybe even in some ways than mm. evangelical fiction. I I struggle with this question because I find that um, aesthetic evaluations so often seem like they're objective, but they're actually hiding a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're hiding a lot of class um, positions. There's a there's a strong sense that like what's popular and what's accessible to less educated and less wealthy people is not good. Right. And what's, you know, what you need a college education to appreciate that's quality. Um, There's also a bunch of moral claims sort of hiding in the aesthetic judgments. And as a historian who spends all his time trying to describe the world, <laughs> um, I I end up being kind of suspicious of those arguments. Um, I also love Flannery O'Connor, right? I get yeah, it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite novels is Graham Greene's The Power mm-hmm. and the Glory. Yeah. But is that because I know what's good? Or is it because I'm a college-educated person who's interested in certain kinds of complexity um, I don't know. I'm yeah. not, I'm not so, I'm not so clear that we can easily and, and quickly just determine the good stuff versus the bad right. stuff. Right. I but, will say yeah. that for the most part, you know, the institutions of evangelicalism have encouraged art that's popular. Right. Yeah. And that's mass, it's mass mm-hmm. produced. Um, this, you know, this goes back though to, to 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 early Protestantism, producing not very special singular volumes, but mass producing mm-hmm. newspapers and tracts, and right. you know, Great there's culture. a there's a yeah. history of Catholic reading, which is one book and very devotionally, right. versus Protestant reading, which is a lot and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's okay though. 
I think it's okay that that um evangelicalism produces popular art and and mass art that right. doesn't that doesn't bother me and if I'm not through education quite in that class I still think it can be valuable to have my spirituality not quite so connected to being an educated middle class person right but to be something yeah. accessible to um a wider variety of people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really, it's just fascinating to see how some of those strands work out, you know, uh, um, to think about kind of the mass appeal as, as the good and, and as the, as the formate formative thing. Yeah. And sometimes things feel spiritual to us because they're not accessible to people. Right. There's a sense that like um, it's special because only these kinds of people have access to it. And therefore it must be um, it must be really good. And I think evangelicalism as a tradition is suspicious of that. Right. Yeah, if your right. if your church feels like uh, Whole Foods, it's really, really good for you. But definitely poor people can't come here. I think evangelicalism has not universally, but by and large said, well, maybe maybe Jesus came for everybody and maybe the <laughs> right. Bible should be readable by everybody. And mm-hmm. maybe the spiritual truths um, have a depth, but also have a really broad, mm-hmm. broad surface mm-hmm. that um, is accessible. That doesn't require special access. Mm-hmm. doesn't require special training to get to. Mm-hmm. Well, as we think a little bit about the kind of art and limits this season too, I wanted to ask you particularly what do you feel like are the limits of a evangelical fiction? You know, mm-hmm. where, where can it go? Where can it move us? Where, you know, what are those good limits that help us to actually rethink our faith or our work in the world or loving our neighbor of evangelical fiction, particularly? I wrote a book, it came out this fall called A Spacious Life Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. And really seeing our limits as invitations that, you know, our, mm. our human limits are invitations to knowing God and making him known. And so this next season, I wanted to talk about, yeah, what is what do limits in art look like? You know, limits in art can often help us be more creative, not less. You know, the yeah. lines of a poem can give us a structure in which to move and to work. And, you know, as we're talking about this, this sense of evangelicalism and its fiction, a lot of stuff we 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 you know been hitting on is that we actually resist the idea of you know this infrastructure of the publishing industry or yeah. you know that we tend to see you know the the content of these novels are folks going out and doing their own thing and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps a little bit and so to what extent do you feel like the you know evangelical fiction that's been popular that's kind yeah. of you've charted this course yeah. Gives us, you know, these boundary lines that kind of g- tell us what what our faith looks like. And, you know, maybe there's a pro and con, you know, as sure. you think about it of this is how the limits are good. And here's where maybe we need to, be, you know, elbow past them a little bit. Here are two ideas I have about how the limits of popular evangelical fiction can be good <laughs> and maybe teach us something good. Yeah. And teach us a kind of like important spiritual truth. I think one 
one limit that I think is really interesting is how you don't get to own the novel all to yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. I've talked about the the effect of the community of the novel, but I, I, I see so often this impulse and I feel so often this impulse to, to kind of own a thing yeah. and have control over it. Um, you see this sometimes in fan cultures, right? We only want the right kind of people. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the openness of popular novels um, that I think is right. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Another one I would say is the, and the, this isn't unique to evangelical novels, but there's there's something about the the accountability to the to the person who's receiving the text. Um, I mean, the author's in a conversation, and and um, you're not understood until you're understood by the other person. And there's this sort of mutuality to it in a way that I think goes against the individualism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people talk about novels as deeply individualistic. You know, they're such a modern art form and Mm -hmm. they're mostly about private, very private spaces and, and very private pleasure. Um, But it is also a kind of communication. So Mm -hmm. there's always that, um, that sense of, what you owe the author and what the author is depending on the reader for. Mm-hmm. And that mutuality, I think is, um, I think there's something important there. Yeah. Maybe a limit that I don't know is good, is good or bad is the, um, that I think about a lot is the, the institutional nature, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think if you gave one person a million dollars and said, fix evangelical fiction, what they would probably do is, produce a new novel or a different novel or like get one author, what they probably wouldn't do is think about where bookstores are located Hmm. or what kind of data publishers look at when they make decisions, right? To think Mm -hmm. about these things, not just in terms of the good ideas or the bad ideas, right? but um, the structures that uphold those ideas. Yeah. 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 Who's in the room, who's on the board Mm -hmm. um, and where these things where these things exist. Um, you know, I think this extends even to like where writers trained, writers being trained in universities versus in workshops versus by reading popular novels themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, I think that's just a fact of the world. It's just the way the world works. Um, but I also think it's like hard to wrap our heads around, you know, and novels are an example. Like it's really, Novels tend to be built around people and people making decisions. It's all, it's really hard to have a novel that, that tells a story about institutions shaping something. <laughs> right, right, right. Like right that's yeah. a very weird novel. And, and the art form kind of can't grapple. Mm-hmm. Not that it can't. It has a hard time grappling with the, the world that um, includes structures that shape and limit our choices. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the next frontier <laughs> for evangelical yeah. fiction. That would be fabulous. That would be fun. Yeah. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate your work. And uh, yeah, I think it, it's a good, it asks, your book asks a lot of really good questions about what does it mean to be an evangelical and what are the structures that support it? Um, and yeah, that form our imaginations. So really good, good food for thought. But as we conclude, I'd Thanks. love to hear your laundry routine. My laundry routine. Yeah. I tend to do it once a week. Mm-hmm. 
whenever I've run out of shirts, that tends to be the the decider. It helps if it's the weekend, but it doesn't yeah. always happen on the weekend. Yeah. Um, and then it's in the basement or it's in the garage, I guess, which yeah. is downstairs. Um, so carry it down, run it through the wash, hopefully switch to the dryer immediately, though that doesn't always happen. <laughs> And then I normally leave it on the bed for a couple of days before I fold it and put it away. That's a very important part. I don't yeah. know why, but it just helps all the clothes air out. There you go. <laughs> gives my my cat a chance to check out everything. You know, so everything needs rewashing. The most, <laughs> the most important part of the routine is that long, long period of before folding. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. You know, maybe... Maybe we all need new structures for our laundry routines too. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, Thanks so much. This yes. was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Solomon. You can pick up a copy of his book, Reading Evangelicals, in the link in the show notes. And as we think about such a wide-ranging conversation about everything from books to bookstores to what does it mean to even be evangelical and what do we even think about using that word, it's hard to think, okay, but what do I do on an average Tuesday? And so I want to leave you with one small step, and it's simply this. Take a few minutes and think about the infrastructure of your reading life. Maybe it's a physical bookstore. Maybe you buy from Amazon. Maybe you find yourself reading simply in one narrow theological strain. And I would like to encourage you to think about simply changing that up. Maybe you're not going to walk to your neighborhood bookshop, but you want to think about reading more widely. Maybe different genres, different time periods. And I think as we begin to change just one small thing, either where we purchase or how we purchase or what does it look like to be in community with different genres and different types of books, we'll begin to get some of that multiplicity that Daniel was talking about. So I'd love to hear what is one small step you're taking to widen your reading life this season. You can tag me on social media at AA Hales and join in the conversation. And lastly, if you have not yet rated or reviewed the podcast, that would be a huge help to get more listeners tuned in to the things that matter most with a dash of practical laundry advice. (laughs) Thanks friends for being here. It's always so encouraging. Remember that the big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.